Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I want you to grab your Bible, if you have, and go with me to the book of Psalms. Psalm 55 is going to be our text for today. And um, Psalm 55, we're going to look at one verse, verse 22. Psalm 55 Verse 22, I do want to say as, as well, I want to welcome those that are streaming live and uh, pray that God would minister to you and speak to you. Very confident that as we open up our hearts to his word and we talk about the sufficiency of Jesus, uh, then we can leave this place changed. Amen? There's one thing I need this morning. You know what it is? Better yet, who it is? It's Jesus. There's one, one, one person you need this morning. You know who it is? Jesus. So if we keep the focus and centrality there... I think we'll leave this place changed. Amen? Amen. Psalm 55 and verse 22. Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your cares on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. I want to read it again. Cast your cares on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be forsaken. In this series called Three Peas in a Pod, last week Pastor Chad opened us with the first P. That was the P of prayer. Today's assignment is for me to share the second P, and that is problems. Problems. God will sustain us in the midst of life's problems. I want to pray, but I want to ask you to pray with me as well. My, my uncle, who's fairly young, 67, he had a heart attack two days ago, and he is, he's, he's getting really close to passing. He's at about 10% um, heart capacity, and he's ventilated. But my dad's going today. He's lived a very rough life, and, and he's finally responding with his eyelids. So my dad's going to have somewhat of a deathbed conversation with him today of sharing the gospel. And uh, as they take him off the machines, we pray that his soul enters into the presence of Jesus. Amen? And so I want you to pray for that today. It's a big conversation with him in the hospital and just that he's aware and that he responds appropriately to the gospel, all right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to love and to not only come in and worship you, but God, greet one another, to encourage one another. And so, Father, we really don't, we don't know what, what is appropriate, honestly, for a king who would give his life for us, other than to just simply have hearts that sing hallelujah. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will do. We didn't come here for blessings today. We want you. We want the power of your presence in our lives, the power of your promises to be operative in our hearts and our lives and our families. And Father, we know that as we declare your truth in the word of God today, that God, it will not return void. We do pray for my own father as he has a conversation with Mike today, that God, his soul would be redeemed, restored. God, as your word even declares, even to that thief on a cross today, You'll be with me in paradise. We thank you that your grace is greater than our sin. Your mercies are new every morning. We give you praise for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. So when you talk about problems, talk about problems. The big idea is that all of our spiritual problems ultimately go back to a view of God that is too small. 
That's my proposal today, that much of what we experience when it comes to spiritual problems goes back to the idea that we have too small of a view of God. Many, many months ago, I preached to you on the story of Job, and I showed in the story of Job that a lot of our doubts come from the fact that we assume sometimes that God is only a slightly little bigger and a slightly smarter version of us. And so we think because of that, we should be able to grasp his purposes in all seasons of life. We think even a little bit arrogantly that we should understand the ways of God and understand all that he's doing in every season of life. And then that leads us secondly to an ongoing temptation that we have and that's to reshape God into a form we like better. So oftentimes when we hit problems in our lives, we're hitting problems in our lives because we're disillusioned with the wrong view of who God is. We have become disillusioned. And so what we tend to do as humans is when we can get our hands on God's face, we reshape it. And we try to mar, or try to re, in reshaping it, we mar up the face of God. And that kind of God, while... While it feels easier to believe in him because he doesn't confuse us or sometimes he doesn't confront us, I have showed us that, in fact, when we reshape him, he ends up corrupting us spiritually, that God does, and ultimately leaving us very disappointed in bitterness. So we've seen that doubt and we've seen that unhappiness come from a view of God that's too small. Today, I want to show you a little different facet. Today I want to show you how the universal experience of insecurity, that universal experience of we feel that we are not enough to face life's challenges, that sense of being overwhelmed, that we're not capable and competent enough to face life's problems, that feeling that we are indeed just not enough also comes from a view of God that is too small. See, I believe that many of our problems, many of our challenges, and our inability to deal with them comes from a view of God that is too small. I experienced in my own life the insecurity, great insecurity, one night when I found myself standing face to face with a group of convicted felons in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And you're probably thinking, you know what, I, if I was me, I'd probably experience insecurity too. But it's probably not what you're thinking. I'm referring to a meeting I had with some of our brothers, because they are believers, in the prison ministry I was a part of. At the age of 20 years old, I developed a heart for ministry, and I was serving as a pastor at my church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I heard of a ministry called Prison Prevention Ministry. It was PPM. They do a fabulous work uh, around the United States. And so I asked a friend of mine to join me in some of their training sessions, and we did the training process and applied, and I remember getting access to my first detention facility, my first kind of uh, incarcerated experience. And uh, I went there on a Tuesday night, and little did I know what would come of this next two and a half years. Again, I was 20 years old, and I weighed about a buck 58, and uh, I walked into the prison that night, and I had nothing but my Bible, and I had a couple sheets of hymns that I had printed out because I knew my brothers in there did not have the access to any screens and a wall, anything like that, and so... I remember, you know, putting all my stuff through the security and then had to go through security and get the other stuff or get my stuff back, put it in my pockets. And one of the guards said, you're going to be doing a Bible study in pod D. And I remember going down the hallway and 
and then passing through the next security checkpoint and the next security checkpoint, and each time, you know, the doors are slamming behind you. And I remember walking in at 20 years old in pod D, and the pod D had two levels, and it had cells all around in an L shape, and then had a second level. And they had picnic tables below and, of course, phones on the wall. And the moment I entered into pod D in, in, in Silverdale, uh, this f- facility, all of the guys that were in the rooms began to beat just like you think in the movies, and begin to catcall me. Little did I find out they thought I was a new security guard, and so they were really going to have it out for me. And that's just, that's just, that's just the school of hard knocks. And I remember then they walked me through the pod, opened up the back door of the pod into a small hallway that was no more than about eight feet wide. The man, the officer, looked at me and he said, I'm going to walk out this back door, and it'll lock, and I'm by myself, right? And he said, in just a moment, I'm going to open up pod D, and anybody that's in their cells can leave pod their cells, and they're just going to come in here and meet you in this hallway. <laughs> okay, yeah, y'all, y- y- you had to be there then, okay? He walks out the door, and it slams. I'm waiting one minute, two minutes, three minutes, and, and all of the cells open up, Right? They, they've just been catcalling me, right? Screaming at me, so on and so forth. And let me tell you what happened. What happened was anything less or, 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 or totally different from what I expected. And there were eight guys that first night that ventured into the hallway. And when they did, they came and shook my hand. And we sat down in that little eight-foot hallway. And that began a journey where I would be there for almost three hours every Tuesday night for two and a half years. We had some amazing, amazing times. Men that blessed me. I went in there to bless them. They're singing at the top of their lungs, I'll fly away. In the back hallway of Pod D, the Silverdale Detention Facility. Many of them we got to help and got to even be there in court with them. And many of them, once getting out of their sentencing, were then able to build a relationship with long term. It changed my life. Every Tuesday night, I would get done about 10 o'clock, and I would go back home, and we would go to our brother-in-law's house, and we'd just kind of sit around, and they would want to hear the stories of what happened that night. I remember one in particular, Brian Goforth, incredible, incredible man. One of him, he, or he told me as he was a, a pro, approaching his release day, and I had kind of assumed that he would be just overwhelmed with excitement and anticipation of restarting his life, but instead... I remember him telling me one night the main emotion he was feeling now that the day was approaching was not one of exhilaration. It was one of the deepest seated fears that he had experienced up to that point in his life. I remember him saying, Craig, what if I don't have what it takes to function in the real world anymore? What if I've been incarcerated or locked up long enough that I don't have what it takes? I remember him saying, I I messed up so bad the first time. What, What if I end up doing it again? What if this next time I don't find mercy? Let me tell you, church, insecurity is the voice inside of you that whispers, next slide, I am not blank enough. I am not blank enough. What most often goes into that blank for you? Now, you have to figure out what goes in that blank. You have to write in that blank, what it is, what lie you tend to believe. I'm not good-looking enough. I'm not athletic enough. I'm not young enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not funny enough. I'm not capable enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not competent enough. Maybe you feel like life is this delicious bowl of soup and you are a fork. And you're unable to be competent. You're unable to get anything out of life. 
Maybe you just got hired for a job and you're not sure you can do it. And what's worse is now that you've joined the job, you're pretty sure nobody else thinks you can do it either. You're pretty sure that when others are gathered around at the water cooler at lunch and they're laughing about something, you're positive it's you. You're positive that they're able to see your incompetency. You're positive that they're able to see that you're incapable of the job that you have been hired for. Or maybe you've just embarked on some new phase of life. Maybe you're a new mother. We have a lot of those in our church. Maybe it's a new assignment in your career. Maybe you're going into retirement and you're just not sure you have what it takes to make it in the next chapter. I mean, every parent feels like this at some point, right? I mean, parents, is this not the God honest truth? There is nothing on the planet that destroys your feelings of competence greater and better than having kids, right? There's nothing that destroys your sense of, I got my life together quicker than having human souls come out of your body and then live with you for a few years. It destroys your feelings of adequacy. I heard a guy say very early on, my mentor of mine, he, said, he told me, he said, the only possible way, Craig, to be happy as a parent is you need to lower your expectations on everything. I mean, that's basically what he said. I mean, you need, you need to lower your expectations because you're going to get a whole gamut as a parent. You're going to experience everything. Or maybe you started dating someone and you're not sure if you measure up to their family's expectations. I know one guy I counseled, he said that every family dinner felt like a tryout with his, with his you know, significant other. He felt like a tryout and he felt like at some point he was going to be asked to excuse himself so the family could vote on him. And the family could have a moment to see if he could belong to the family unit or not. Some of you are married, and you still feel that way with your in-laws. You still feel incompetent or insecure. I know a guy who said to me a girl broke up with him because she said he was too insecure. You know what he said? Craig, what in the world do I do with that? Like, how's that going to help me? If I was insecure before I met the girl, and she broke up with me because she said I'm too insecure, what do you think my security level looks like now? Maybe some of you, you feel like God has called you to a ministry you feel totally, utterly incapable of. I know many church planners feel this way. In fact, I'd say all church planners feel this way. They're unpacking the moving truck. They're sitting down with their laptop at the coffee shop looking for unsuspecting people to talk to. And then all of a sudden, three months on the ground, they're thinking, what in the world am I here for? I don't know what to do. I don't know what direction to take. And you feel overwhelmed by the impossibilities or even possibilities. So the truth of the matter is all of us in life's problems are going to experience insecurity at some point. And can I just propose to us that Instagram and Facebook and Twitter have made this a thousand times worse? Because no matter what you do, there's always somebody out there doing it better than what you do. Like I refuse to go on Instagram around Valentine's Day. Can I just go ahead and tell you right now? Because no matter what I've done for my wife, no matter what I've ever done for Meredith, there's always some guy out there Putting me to shame, right? I'm feeling pretty good because I got married with some flowers and took her to her favorite restaurant. Then I see a friend from college at Lee University who got his girl a pony and they went backpacking through Europe. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, dear God, please don't let Meredith see. Well, Exodus chapter 3, it opens up with a, 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 a very insecure person. His name's Moses. If you got a Bible, turn there with me. Moses had started out his life with a lot of confidence, hadn't he? He was a good-looking guy in a high-paying job, 
right? He was Pharaoh's adopted son. But then somehow in his early 20s, he didn't, he, he, it kind of felt like God wanted him to do something. Namely, to deliver Israel. But when he tried to do it, things went bad. In fact, in Exodus chapter 2, the first time he tries to deliver them, things go really, really poorly. The Jewish people mock him. The Jewish people reject him. Pharaoh disowns him, and he ends up killing a man. Y'all, is that a bad day at work or not? Everyone hates you, your boss fires you, and you kill someone on the way out to the parking lot. Right? That's pretty insecure. He flees to the desert, to a desert called Midian, and he ends up marrying a nomad girl named Zipporah. Right? Jethro's her father. And he spends the next 40 years in the desert. Now, you want to talk about a life fail. When you're in your 60s, and you are taking care of your father-in-law's sheep on the backside of a desert, living with your father-in-law, that is in modern day what we call failure to launch. Okay? Failure to launch. This is, this is a man that's insecure. Let's see what happens to his insecurity. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'm going to go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Verse 4, and God called to him from within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. God said, verse 5, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Verse 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 10, so now go. I'm sending you, he said to Moses, to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I? Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Y'all time out. Wait a minute. When did we start talking about Moses? Up until this point, the whole conversation has been about God and what God wanted to do. But now Moses makes them himself the point of the conversation. Insecurity can't listen to anyone but themselves. Insecurity has a way, a strong way of the preoccupation with themselves. We're looking at their own, in, their own insufficiencies, their own incompetencies. Now commentators say that this reveals the deep insecurities Moses had been carrying around from his previous failures. In fact, they point out the statement, who am I, is an echo of the very question the Israelites had thrown in Moses' face 16 verses earlier. And when he tried to deliver them the first time in Exodus chapter 2, they said, who are you? Who are you, big stuff? And why would we follow you? So what are you saying, Craig? What I'm saying is that Moses' repetition of that question shows us that their doubts had seeped into his soul. That the words that had been spoken from his own kinfolk, he had become convinced of. That the doubts that he obviously didn't have as a very competent young man have now seeped into his psyche as others have 
tossed these words upon him. I don't know, maybe that's happened to you. Somebody criticized you for so long, for so long, month after month, year after year, that you started believing those things about yourself. Maybe it was a dad that said those things about you. Maybe it was an ex-spouse that said those things about you. Maybe it was an abusive boss that said those things about you. Maybe they threw shade at you for so long that you started to believe them. You started to doubt yourself. You started to believe the lies. Well, that's what happens to Moses. But look at verse 12. God said, I will be with you, Moses. I will be with you. And this is important, church, because notice how God deals with our insecurities. He deals with our insecurities not in the way that we usually do it. He didn't say, Moses, I'm taking you onto a talk show, and I'm going to reinforce positive thoughts in your mind, Moses, and I'm going to help you discover your inner tiger. He didn't, go to, he didn't go to Moses and say, hey, Moses, look in the mirror and repeat after me. You ready? Hey, Moses, say this. My name is Moses. My name is Moses. And I'm a bad man. And I'm a bad man, right? Like Jock Peterson did in the World Series, right? If you ever saw him. He, was, he had these like confessional statements for all the Braves. Did you see him? all the time? Now, they involve some cuss words. But uh, you could read the lips, right? And so this is not what God does with Moses. Now, Moses, I want you to visualize. Close your eyes, Moses. I want you to visualize walking into Pharaoh's court. Now I want you to experience the feeling of taking him down. Now open your eyes again. Moses say, I am Moses, right? He didn't do that at all. God just simply, watch this, shifts the narrative back to himself. And he says, uh, Moses, I, I don't know, I don't know if you know this or not, but when I called you, I didn't call you today because I trusted in your competency. Okay, that's not how I call people. (laughs) I don't look for talented people in which they can know that they are talented so they'll do things for me. That's not how I operate, Moses. I I never actually brought you up in this conversation. I said, this is what I was going to do to my people in Egypt. I said, this is how I am going to deliver my people whose cries have come up before me, Moses. I will be with you. You say, Craig, why? Listen, listen, you can write this down. The reason he says this is because confidence, next slide, true confidence comes not from a better assessment of your potential, but it comes from a clear view of God. True confidence to face your problems does not come from a better assessment of who you are and what your potential is. True confidence and bravery comes from you getting a clear view of your God. A clearer view of who God is. God said, I will be with you. I will be with you. In other words, what is God saying to Moses? Moses, he doesn't say, Moses, you don't see yourself the right way. No, no, no. He says, Moses, look at me. Eyes on me, Moses, locked right here. But Moses still doesn't get it, does it? He still keeps talking about his deficiencies. So notice verse 13, go back to our original text. He says, well, it, what if this happens? Or, well, what if that happens? Well, well, I can't speak. Or, well, I, what, what will happen if I tell them who sent me? What should, verse 13, what should I do then? Moses, you are not getting it, bro. This is not about I, 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 I. He constantly, what do I do? What is it about me, God? And verse 14, in a very humorous response, I got to add, God just ignores his question. And in verse 14, God doesn't provide an answer. And what God does instead is he uses the next nine verses to focus entirely on what he, God, has done, is doing, and will do. 
That's how he helps a man who's in the midst of problems. He says, Moses, this is not about you having what it takes. This is about me accomplishing my purposes. Yeah, yeah, you have a role in that, Moses, but the power, the success in it, that belongs to me. Listen, Moses, I don't need you to be a victor, Moses. I just need you to be a vessel. I am the victor. Listen, Moses, I'm not looking for your ability. I'm looking for your availability. Let me say it again, church. Let me say it again. Confidence comes not from discovering greater things about yourself or tapping into your inner tiger or tapping into your inner potential. Confidence comes from seeing how big and how powerful and omniscient and omnipotent God is. Discovering that God and his purposes for your life and his commitment to carry them out and then being swept up in those purposes. That's where confidence comes. Reminds me of a story I heard years ago at a general assembly about a group of fishermen who were discovered floating off the coast of Indonesia, holding on to the wreckage of a ship. And this is in the 1950s, a man told this. He was 10 or 11 years old at the time. And he said this group of men, Asian men, found themselves holding on to the wreckage of a ship. The authorities picked them up. And when the Coast Guard comes to pick them up, there was an American base right next to them. The fishermen complained about being attacked from a cow from heaven. They would not stop talking about how a cow attacked them in the water from heaven. And um, a man telling the story, he said, I was 10 or 11 years old at the time, and when the authorities heard these men talking about a cow attacking them from heaven, they thought, this is surely a drug deal gone bad. Okay, like something happened with the ship. These dudes are on something. Well, a few days later, they put them in jail. A few days later, these American soldiers come forward sheepishly. And they're thinking, what in the world is going on? And they have an army base off of one of these islands. And they have on that little island, a, a, on that army base, a runway in which they would take off, right, all of the ships. And they began to make confession to the authorities. They said, we were about to take off on our B-52 bomber the other day. And as we were going and taxing down the runway in order for us to take off... They said a cow walked across from one field of our runway across the runway to the other side. And they said, you know what? When the cow started walking across, they thought, you know what? Doesn't seem like that cow belongs to anybody. And they said, you know what? Might as well just go ahead and pick up the cow. We can slaughter it and we get to our location tonight. And we're going to be having a good night of prime rib and filet mignon. And so what did they do? They couldn't fit the cow inside the cockpit of the fuselage, so they do what anybody does. They open up the B-52 bay bomb, the bomb bay, you know, down there at the bottom, and they put the cow in there, and they said everything was going good. They got up over the ocean at about 10,000 feet. They said the cow, I don't know if it was oxygen or the pressurization, but they said the thing started wigging out. And so they couldn't get it to calm down. So the guy makes confession. You know, I did what only anybody could do. And he pulls the lever and opens up the bay door. And all of a sudden, now the cow is flying down from heaven in the midst of these men that are in the ocean. Now listen, I have no way to verify whether that story is true or not, right? But the guy told it in assembly. But if it is, I don't know about you, my mind begins to wonder. Like, what was in the fisherman's mind when they saw a cow plummeting from the skies towards them? I bet they were thinking, we better move or, or, or what was going through the cow's mind, you know? Like, utter destruction ahead, utter destruction ahead, utter... De- okay, sorry, no more cow puns. I had to milk it for all it's worth. Um, but, but, but think just for a moment. 
This cow is eating grass. He crosses a runway. He's minding his own business when suddenly he gets swept up into forces that are beyond his imagination, right? Beyond what he could ever imagine. In many ways, when we discover God's purposes, we're a little bit like that cow who's walking along only thinking about the next bite of grass and we step onto a runway with forces that are so powerful we can scarcely imagine them and before we know it, we are soaring at heights that we never dreamed possible. Moses is minding his own business and before you know it, he gets swept up in the promises and purposes of Almighty God. People say, how do I gain the confidence to face life's problems? Listen to me. You gain the confidence to face God's problems not by trying to get God on your side. The way you develop confidence in life is you begin to live out the purposes of God that you discover in Scripture. And people that wait back and try to understand God's will before they, all the, all, before they take the opportunity and initiative to do the Scriptures they know to do will never get swept up into the purposes and plan of Almighty God. So, so many people, what happens is they, mistake, they make a, a crucial mistake reading the Bible because they assume the Bible is primarily about them, a manual kind of spiritual tips of how to achieve a victorious Christian life, but the, the Bible is primarily about God, not you. And page after page of the Bible reveals who He is and what He's like. Right? And it's only when you and I come to an awareness of who he is can we discover who we are. It's only by becoming confident in his purposes will we ever become confident in his purpose for us. Many of you, you've tried to find the will of God, but you've put, you say, I want to find the will of God for my life, but you put all the emphasis on my. I want to find the will of God for my life. No, no, no. In America, listen, you need to discover the will of God for the world, then you worry about his will for you. If you'll get involved in his will for the world around you, you will find yourself swept up in the will of God for your life. But it takes us focusing on his will. Some of us approached God like saying, God, how can you help me to achieve my life purposes? No, we've got it all wrong. We're supposed to approach God surrendering to his. And that's where confidence comes, real confidence comes. And this is what God keeps trying to patiently show Moses. He drives his point home by introducing to Moses a name. If you've got your Bible, look at verse 13 with me again. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what's that God's name? Then what shall I tell them? Listen to God, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, this is an irony. Say, so, Craig, why is it an irony? Because God's name here is not a name per se. It's a verb. In Hebrew, it's, notice, chaya. Everybody say that with me. Chaya. Okay? If you do it rightly, you're going to sound like you're karate chopping somebody. And somebody's going to be wiping something off the back of their neck in front of you. Okay? Come on, say it with me. Say, chaya. Right? We write it Yahweh, or we write it Jehovah. If you open your Old Testament and you see L-O-R-D, all caps, that's Haya. Okay? Not capital L, little O-R-D, but capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is Haya. This is Yahweh. We call it Jehovah. What is God saying? He's saying, Moses, I'm not like anything you've ever experienced before. Moses, I don't have needs. I don't require any help. 
I don't get tired. Moses, I have no limits. I have no boundaries. I didn't have a beginning, Moses. I'm not going to have an ending. Moses, Moses says, God, what do I tell him? Well, who, who do I tell him sent me? I am that I am sent you. Tell, tell, tell Pharaoh and tell the Israelites, I am that I am sent you. I am unbounded. I am unchanging. I am always and forever the same. I am not intimidated by Pharaoh. And I'm certainly not limited by your inabilities, Moses. You, you, you got this wrong again, Mr. Insecurity. This is not me coming to you asking you to do something for me. This is me coming to you to tell you that I am is with you. I am is with you. I am is with you. I had a moment this week where I was watching the sunrise early, early in the morning. And I'd been sitting in an outside location, hour before daylight. And I remember when that sun came up, I had just this new sense of surge and confidence where I felt like the Lord whispered from heaven, you are mine, Craig. Holy Moses. You are mine. The Lord, if you've repented and put faith in Jesus, says over you today, you are mine. You are the Lord's. You want to talk about where real confidence comes. You want to talk about where real insecurity is slayed. It's what we call in theology the aseity of God. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity of God means that he needs nothing beyond himself. God has no needs. He is self-sustaining. And the burning bush is supposed to give us a glimpse of God's eternal self-sustaining nature. Because the fire burns continually in the bush without burning up the bush. Now, we're smart people. What does fire need to burn? It needs fuel. But when it consumes the fuel, what does it happens to the fire? It goes out. What the fire Moses saw was self-sustaining because it didn't require any fuel. It didn't require any fuel. And in the same way, God, the eternal I am, he needs no external fuel. God is saying to Moses, nothing precedes me, nothing sustains me, and nothing contains me, Moses. I have no needs. This is our hope for our problems. This is our strength for our insecurity. And so Moses, God says, if I am the eternal I am, and I, the eternal I am, and on your side, you don't need anything else, Moses. So listen to me, church, all those places in your life where you feel like you aren't, I am. <laughs> where all the places where I feel overwhelmed and you feel like, you know what, I am not, God says, I am. And it's no longer about who you are, it's about who I am. It's no longer about what I'm not, it's about I am. And you know, when you, when you step back and think about it, I mean, honestly, when you step back and think about it, Moses actually did have a lot of undiscovered potential. He had been... He had been particularly uniquely equipped to accomplish the task God called him to do. Think about it. For the last 40 years, where was Moses? He had led sheep through the very, very wilderness that God wanted to use Moses to take the children of Israel through to escape to the promised land. That meant he knew the terrain. Moses knew the mountain passes. He knew the watering holes. He knew every bush. He knew where to hide. He knew where to sleep. Plus, as a herder of sheep, he knows something about managing unruly crowds. He knows how to take a couple million people and get them across the desert. He's the former son of Pharaoh, so he knows how to read and write legal documents. He knows how to start a government. He knows how to run a government. He knows all of that. This should be like his, you children of the 80s, he, this should be his Mr. Miyagi, you know, Daniel, you know, karate kid moment. 
right? After the sand the floor, paint the fence, and wash the car, Daniel thinks, Mr. Miyagi, you're wasting my time. But then when he did it, he puts it all together, doesn't he? And he sands the floor, and he's painting the fence, and he's washing the car. And you would think now Moses sees it. This is his time. God uniquely prepared him. This is his Mr. Miyagi moment. But Moses can't see that because he was dominated by the insecurities that always come when you focus on yourself. The more you focus on yourself, the more insecure you're going to be. The more you keep focusing on your ability to accomplish God's purposes, the more insecure you're going to be. Now in time, he's going to come to see these things and appreciate God's sovereign preparation of, for him and of him for the task, but he doesn't right now. Hear me, church. Insecurity will have you sitting on a branch for years, afraid to extend your wings. And listen, I don't know if your dad has said something against you, and I, I, I'm so sorry if a dad cursed you with his words, but at some, some point, men, you have to hear me, you're going to have to heal, and you're going to have to take flight. I don't know when insecurity has kept you on the limb and on the branch, but you are not made to sit on the branch. You are made to fly. You have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. You say, Craig, how do I know if I'm insecure? I'm going to tell you, it's easy. Your insecurity is revealed in your choices. And oftentimes, what happens is we pick ponds, not realizing we are actually equipped for oceans. I was in Buffalo County, Wisconsin this week, which is on the line of Minnesota and Wisconsin, which is also called, called the Mississippi Flyway for Ducks. It's the biggest flyway in America. And we went to this one pond where these ducks had become de domesticated for so long that they didn't realize they had the capacity to fly all the way down to Louisiana and back every winter and spring. And they're settling on a pond when they're made to fly to oceans. That's the majority of Christians I meet. They're content to sit on ponds when they've been given wings to fly on oceans. And insecurity just keeps them wrapped in their own insufficiency, their own incompetency. But what is most interesting to me about this passage is that in God, in trying to give confidence to Moses, he doesn't point any of that out, even though it was true. He could have said, look, I was preparing you. He doesn't say, look, Moses, wake up. I've been preparing you for the last 40 years. You have what it takes. Instead, you know what he simply says? Moses, I'm with you. Walk forward in confidence, knowing that, listen, what I've called you to, I will supply you for. And as Moses did that, he started to see how God had been his ever-present help all along. He had been preparing him for this great work. So my question for you today is this, church. What if you looked at your life through the eyes of faith? What if you looked at your problems right now through the eyes of faith? Believing that in everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, the exciting, the disappointing, the tragedies, the triumph, that there was a sovereign, sovereign loving God behind it all and he's preparing you for his purposes and that same God is now calling you forward trusting that the one who faithfully prepared you will faithfully see you through whatever it is that you're facing today you see where confidence comes from God doesn't deal with Moses' insecurities by teaching him anything about himself. Although Moses had a lot to learn about himself. In this moment, God deals with Moses' insecurities by calling him to focus on who God was. Who he was in his life. Because again, confidence does not come from a clear self-assessment. Confidence comes from a clear view of God. 
So when Moses says, God, but I'm not eloquent enough. God, I'm not smart enough. God, I'm not successful. God responds, I didn't choose you because you were any of those things. I have enough of all those things for the both of us. You are not Moses, but I am. I am God enough. In fact, we learn throughout all of Scripture that God never chooses the guy that says, oh, I know why God chose me. I was so talented. He had to have me on his team. That kind of guy just clogs up the line. That kind of girl just clogs up the line, right? When they accomplish something great, they say, you know what? Finally, the world has recognized my talents. No, God prefers instruments who are broken, doesn't he? The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise, Psalm 51 verse 17. In America, we tend to throw things away when they get broken. But in the kingdom of God, you can't be used until you are broken. Until you are stripped of self-sufficiency. And God knows that you will have to lean on him. That's why Paul... Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, there's not many mighty, there's not many eloquent, there's not many rich, there's not many powerful. No, God chooses the weak and the despised so that all the glory goes to him. That all of the praise and honor goes to God and not the vessel. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if you want to write this down, next slide. Feeling inadequate is actually a prerequisite to being used by God. That's the prerequisite to even receiving the call. To feel personally inadequate. To feel personally overwhelmed. And if you don't feel inadequate, he's not going to choose you. If you don't feel broken, he's not going to use you. But God, I'm not good enough. And God says, I know, but I am. But God, I'm not skilled enough. God says, I know, but I am. God, I'm not confident. God says, I know you're not, but I am. And I want you to find your confidence in me. God says, God says, Moses, I am the God of very unpromising material. And you may not be, but I always am. And my I amness overcomes your notness. I am. I am that I am. At our Christmas, DP Christmas Eve gathering two years ago, I told you that throughout Israel's history, God would re- reinvoke this I am name. Whenever Israel was in a time of great need, God would reinvoke the name Jehovah and then he would attach to it whatever they lacked. Let me, let me just show you something real quick. Did you know the names of God? The very names whereby God is known as are created in the time of people's need. So all throughout the Old Testament, when they hit another need, you know what God did? He would re-invoke his name, Jehovah, and then he would attach to whatever they needed to find in him, that name. That's how he would reveal himself. I am whatever you need. I am that I am. That's who I am. In fact, that that word I am is used 6,519 times in the Old Testament alone. Jehovah. Hayah, Yahweh, I am that I am. And God's use of I am throughout Scripture is like the whole gospel. It's like the whole gospel. In Exodus, listen, when the people of Israel were wounded and sick because of their sin, you know what God said? He revealed himself, Jehovah, I am Rapha. Next slide. I am your healer. I am your healer. In Leviticus, when Moses laid out the law, the great description of how to walk uprightly with God, the people said, who could ever live this way? Anybody ever ask God that way? 
Or that question, how in the world could I ever live this way? And God answered with, Jehovah Mekadashkinim. Literally, I am your sanctifier. I am the God who enables you to walk with me, God says. When Jeremiah was discouraged by Israel's present inability to walk faithfully before God, they were obstinate and hard-necked and constantly going back to idols. And they said to God, how can we survive? We're so sinful. And you know what God says? I know you're sinful, but I am Sidkenu. I am your righteousness. I am your right standing with me. In Ezekiel's day, when the people of Israel felt scared and they felt alone and they felt besieged by enemies all around, God said, I know you're scared, but Jehovah means I am. Shema, Shema, I am your presence. I am the presence of God with you. I am the all ever present God. When David felt lost and David felt confused and David had no friends left and he had to encourage himself in Ziklag, they burned down his house. His children have died and he is scared to death. God says, hey, I am Ra, Jehovah Ra, Psalm 23. I am your shepherd, David. I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to lead you beside still waters. You're never going to be in want. To Abraham, when he was faced with an impossible circumstance, he's going to kill and sacrifice his firstborn son with no seeming way out. He looks up and there is a ram in the bushes and God says, I am. Hey, 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 you got to hear me, Abraham. I am. What? I am Jireh. I am the Lord who will provide for you. I am the Lord who will see to it. And to Isaiah, who wasn't sure how he would survive another day, God said, Jehovah, I am Sabaoth. I am your defender. You got to hear me, son. I will defend you. I will fight for you. So you know what Jesus does? He comes in the New Testament and he uses a phrase in Greek called ego me. It means I am. He invokes the same name. He takes the same name used of Jehovah or Yahweh or this word being used Lord and he, he applies it to very intimate needs that we have our areas of greatest brokenness. So to those who hunger, he says John 6 35 I am the bread of life. To those who thirst, he says in John 7 I am the living water. Jesus says to those in darkness, John chapter 8, I am the light. To those who need a fresh start, they need to start over, John 10, he said, I am the door. To those who feel abandoned, they feel like they have been forsaken, he says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. To those who feel lost and they don't know where they're left from the right, in John 14, he said, I am the way. To those who are confused and they feel like they're given over to deception, he said, I am the truth. To those who are afraid of death and they don't know what waits them in the next moment, he said, I am the life. These these are what Jesus wants to be to you. These are what Jesus wants to be to my problems, to my insecurities, your problems and your insecurities. To the unrighteous. Amen? To the unrighteous. Jesus says, I will be your righteous covering. To the powerless, he says, I am your defense. To the empty, he says, I am your fullness. To the dead, he says, I am your resurrection. And to the defeated, he says, I am your hope. That means for those in this room who feel overlooked or you feel cut from the team or you feel passed over for promotion at your job, God says, I have a plan for you. I have a plan for you to use you in a significant way in my kingdom to give you a hope and a future and make you a blessing. Listen, listen, church. The Bible's message is not about your self-actualization. It's not about God pointing you to the inner tiger. The Bible's message is about God and what God did for you and what He can accomplish through you. Hear me. Christianity is a statement of something that's already happened. 
Christianity is an event. It is not a moral code. Jesus already died and rose again for you. That is not a suggestion. That is an event. That is news. That is a declaration. That's not something you're trying to attain to. That's something that's already been performed for you. The gospel is not... It is not that God would help us become righteous enough for him. No, no. The gospel is that Jesus was righteous in our place. And he died the death we deserve so we can be given his righteousness as a free gift through faith. How can I know I'm right with God, Pastor Craig? I I don't know how good of a week I had. Oh, you're looking the wrong direction. Jehovah Sidkenu. He said, I am your righteousness. Well, how do I know I can succeed as a father? Or how do I know I can succeed and overcome the temptations. Oh, you don't look within. You don't look at your own strength. Jehovah what? Emet Kadesh. Literally, literally, he is the sanctifier. He's the one that's going to strengthen you. There's only one person in all of history that was ever able to live the Christian life successfully. And he was so good at it, we named the religion after him. It's called Christianity. And what he's not interested in you doing is doing what he did. He's interested in you what receiving his gift. He's interested in you recognizing you can't be the righteousness of God apart from his sacrifice and surrendering to him. And now he lives in you so he can what? Do all things through you. What does Paul say? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. Well, Craig, why can I be confident today when I face trials? Oh, oh, easy, Jehovah Jireh. I am your provider. Well, why am I not afraid today? Why am I not fearful? Jehovah Sabaoth, he is your defender. Why do I not feel abandoned today? Jehovah Shammah, I am your presence. How how do I know my mistakes don't disqualify me from the future of God? Oh, easy. Jehovah Rapha, God says, my scars define your life, not yours. I am that I am. In fact, Jesus' name, Yeshua, Yeshua is literally translated, God, I am your salvation. God, I am your salvation. For all that we need and all that we lack and all that we can never be in ourselves, Jesus is the great I am. I am not enough. You are not enough. Moses was not enough. But God is God enough for Moses and for me and for you. See, I know people came in this weekend carrying all kinds of deficiencies and worries and insecurities and feelings of inadequacy as a parent, as a husband, as a wife, as a student, as a worker, as a Christian. And I don't mean to discourage you, but you know what Scripture actually says about us? We don't even really know the half of it. We're actually so weak, we can't even guarantee we'll be around tomorrow. We are so small right now, it is a sin to tell somebody a promise that you're going to do something tomorrow. I mean, literally, because you, you don't even have tomorrow, as James 4 tells us. Like, we're so weak and so vulnerable. James 4 says we're like a wisp of smoke. James chapter 5 says we're like a blade of grass. If there's a slight shift in wind direction this week or the slightest change in temperature, you and I are gone. Gone. And in the scope of the universe, you and I are so small and insignificant and pitiful. 
We don't amount to a grain of sand on the ocean floor. We're so powerless that Jesus said apart from him, we can do nothing good. We are so wicked, he had to die on a cross to save us. We're so evil that the book of Romans says that literally nothing good dwells inside of our flesh. And if anything is good at work in you, it's God who's working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, I know some of you, you might say, well, that's not real encouraging. That's not real uplifting. Thanks for making me feel small, Pastor Craig. Listen, I'm not trying to make you feel small. I'm telling you that you are small. There is a big difference. And it's only because when you see you are not, are you then ready to lean into the great I am. And until you see you're not, you can't gain strength from who he is. So the promise that we go back to in Psalm 55, and I'll close. Psalm 55, verse 22. Notice it says, I am the Lord. Cast your cares upon me. He says, I am the Lord who sustains you. And he will never let the righteous be forsaken. God is true to fulfilling God's promises. We see this all throughout Scripture. Not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed, Joshua 21 said. Every promise came to pass. Now look at me, church, and I want to close. Whoever's playing keys, if you want to come. God has, has different kinds of promises. So we have to be careful who, how and when we interpret them. So I want to give you just real quick some of the promises God gives us in Scripture. Next slide, there are promises, first of all, of warning. If you do this, God says, there will be consequences. Can I tell you, this is the one my wife and I, we use most. This is the promise to use most in our household with our kids. <laughs> if you do this, this is what's going to happen. That's the promise. There's no sense in trying to be self-righteous. That's the promise I use the most as a parent. If you do this, this will be the consequence. It's a promise of warning. Then there's promises of rescue. Romans chapter 10 says, Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then there's promises of guidance. The psalmist said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, God said. You'll hear a voice behind you saying, walk. This is the way walk you in it. Then there's promises of comfort. Isaiah 40, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings of eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint, right? For the Lord our God is an everlasting God. It's a promise of comfort. Then there's a promise of hope. Revelation 21 says he will wipe away every tear from every eye. And death shall be no more, right? No more mourning. This is a promise of hope. And he says what? He says all things what have become new. Well, today's promise in Psalm 55 is a promise of comfort. And it's a promise of hope. But what I want you to note about this promise is this is a promise that is conditional. Or what we call covenantal. Everybody say conditional. Meaning we must hold our, our side of the deal. There's some promises in the Bible. I don't have time to go into all this. But they don't require anything from us. But there are other types of promises that do require something from us. So Jesus promised to die on the cross and be resurrected. Okay, That does not depend on us. He said no one takes my life. I lay it down. If I have the power to lay it down, I'll get back up regardless of whether you agree with that or do anything to alter that, you can't. That's a promise that does not require you. But then this one requires our participation. He says, the Lord will sustain you. But what's our side of the deal? If you surrender fully to Him. This one requires conditions. 
If you surrender fully to him, he will sustain you. David is experiencing psychological trouble. Look at verse 2 and 3. Anybody ever been there with a racing mind? Hear me. My thoughts trouble me. I'm distraught with the enemy saying, the threats of the wicked, they bring down suffering on me. They assail me in the anger. You ever been there? Anybody ever been distraught with problems? David didn't know his left from his right. His life is falling apart. How will I make it through this? Some of you are saying, how can I make it another year in this marriage? How can I make it another year as a parent? How in the world am I going to make it? I got all these relational pressures. And what happens is we try to sustain ourselves. We try to use our own sustaining mechanisms. Right? There's going to come a point where we all have to be sustained. You may be in a good season right now. But you're going to have to be sustained. And this is the nature of our addictions. Whether it's food, or it's, or it's you know, drugs, or alcohol, or sex, or work. In, in America, addictions are seen one way. They're bad, and you need to stop it. But I see addiction differently. I see addiction as our way of trying to sustain ourselves. So as a pastor, when I meet someone struggling with addiction, you know what I say to them firstly? First thing I say to them is, wow, you have figured out how to stay alive, hadn't you? You figured out how to make it, hadn't you? I hate so badly all the pain you've been experiencing. I don't say it's bad, you shouldn't do it. I say, man, you found a way to cope, hadn't you? But it's not helping you, is it? It promised to help you, but it doesn't help, does it? The thing that promised to self-sustain makes you in more prison, hasn't it? You feel darker, doesn't it? The lights have gotten dimmer, haven't they? Our addictions are our ways of soothing the pain that we have. So my question today is, what you are trying to sustain yourself is it, is it actually sustaining you or bringing you into a further prison the Lord will sustain you and when you declare the great I am then all of a sudden your insecurities begin to fade would you bow your heads with me all across this room Father I thank you I thank you that today God there might be many in this room Say, God, I can't be a good parent. God says to you, I know I can. Maybe you say to God today, I can't make it. He says, I can. You say to God today, I'm so doubtful. He said, but I'm so faithful. God, I'm so dysfunctional. He says, but I'm so complete. Oh, God, I'm so deficient. He says, I'm so sufficient. Well, God, I'm so sinful. But he said, I'm so graceful. Well, God, I'm at the end of my rope. He says, I got another one. And it's long as eternity. I got a rope that never ends. So when the pharaohs of our lives say to us, who do you think you are? We can say today, I don't think I'm anything, but I know the great I am. I am that I am. So my challenge to you this week, with every head down and every eye closed, I want you just to name your insecurity. I want you just right now in your own lips, in your own mind, just say, I'm not, and fill in the blank. Enough. I'm not what enough. Yet in Christ I am. And then you put the sufficiency of Christ's character. I am sufficient enough. I am righteous enough. I am fully equipped. I am an overcomer. I am more than a conqueror. Some of you, you feel like you have nothing to offer. I don't have anything to offer, God. You can be like Paul and fall flat on your face. And God's word to you what God's word to Paul in Acts 26 he said get up stop looking at your limitations and look instead at the power and the faithfulness of the God who's calling you 
Look at the faithfulness and power of the Christ who overcame death, hell, and the grave for you. And let your insecurities fade. I am that I am. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.